So when life gets crazy, where do you go? When there's terrible breaking news, when there's social upheaval, lots of change, where do you turn? Well, if you're like most people, you go for a search. Yeah, you might talk to your friends, you might even pray about it and ponder it, but you open up Google and you go searching. And if Google searches any indication, then in 2022, we were wrestling with a lot of things. In 2022, we had to wrestle with things like, you know, Elon Musk buying Twitter. We had to wrestle with things like Bitcoin and monkeypox. And we had to wrestle with things like, you know, the Mega Millions lottery, gender identity. You know what the top search of 2022 was in the United States? Betty White. That's right. More people searched for Betty White than who searched for Queen Elizabeth. You want to know why? Betty White was our queen. That's right. <laughs> when life happens, we go on a search, and we quite often, literally, go to Google. And each year, Google releases the results of the, the top trends of the year that's gone by. And it's a really fascinating look at to, into what the world has been wrestling with and the answers that they've been searching for. And so I was, as I was looking at that list at the end of this last year, the thought hit me, I wonder if we could take the, the top two or three topics, according to Google of the last year, and just talk about them. Wrestle with them through the lens of our faith and seek to understand them, not according to the algorithm, but according to the scriptures, which is a big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being an apprentice of Jesus means learning to look at the world around us and understand it primarily through the lens or in light of who he is and what he's taught us and what he's won for us and what he's promised for us. And so today we're going to do just that. And we're going to start with a real simple, real easy topic. It was one of the top topics searched for on Google in 2022. You know, just a little topic, war and Ukraine and the end of the world. There were billions of searches for those two things. Is this World War III? Where is Ukraine? How do you pronounce Kiev? How do I help people in the Ukraine what is Armageddon? When will the end of the world be? What does the book of Revelation mean? All these things together searched for billions of times over in the last year. That's been on our minds. So what are people of faith to make of it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, just a, a little light conversation on a Sunday morning. I've boiled it all down to this question. How do people of faith live in a frightening and warring world? How do people of faith live in a frightening and warring world? Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was having a really heavy discussion with his disciples about precisely this. And they were walking out of Jerusalem. They were walking away from Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us that, that the temple, the, the largest building in Jerusalem, the, the most grand and beautiful building in Jerusalem, was looming behind them as they walked out of the city. And the disciples were marveling at this building and at the, really the glory of Jerusalem as a whole. And Jesus says to them, he says, you do know that all of this is going to come crashing down one day. That in the end, none of these things that we have built 
these temples, these cities, these kingdoms, none of it is going to stand. In the end, it's all going to fall apart. And then the disciples, of course, they want to know when, how, and what's it going to look like, and how will we know when this is occurring? This is what they say. Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, and interesting little thing here, as you sit on the Mount of Olives, you have the best view in the land of Jerusalem and the temple. So it's very likely that as they've walked out of Jerusalem, they went to the Mount of Olives, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is pointing at the cities, pointing at the temple, all the stuff that he said is going to be destroyed. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, this is interesting, see that no one leads you astray. The disciples want to know when this is going to happen and what it's going to be like. But Jesus refuses to answer that question. He won't tell them when it's going to happen. Instead, he responds to their question of when will the end of the world be with this. He says, see that no one leads you astray. They want to know what's going to happen. Jesus is most concerned with how they will carry themselves when it all goes down. They want to know the details. He cares about their character in the midst of it all. Now, why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons. Number one, Jesus is God in flesh, and he he knows the end, and he knows that he's got it well in hand. He knows this is the last week of his life. He knows that he's about to die on a cross, rise from the grave, and secure a good ending for all of humanity. He knows how this whole thing's going to end, and he's, he's saying to them, implicitly, you don't need to worry about that. Instead, what he's worried about is is where they hitch their heart, to, to whom they place or in whom they place all of their hope as the world gets crazy. And what he wants them to do is to interpret the crazy things that happen in this world through the lens of who he is and what he's about to accomplish on the cross and in the empty tomb. What he wants is for them to view all the craziness of a warring and waning world through him, and not through somebody else or something else. He wants them to interpret it through the lens of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Now, get in your time machine and go all the way back to February of last year. February of last year is when Russia invaded Ukraine, and no matter how you feel about it, we're not going to get into the geopolitical implications of the whole thing. That's not my bag. I'm a Jesus guy. We're going to talk about it from that perspective. But just go back to when that whole thing happened, and no matter how you feel about it, you have to admit, it's, it's a frightening thing to see happen, and horrible things have flowed from it. Horrible things. How did you feel when you first heard that Russia had invaded Ukraine? And how did you seek to make sense of it? What was your instinct, your impulse? For for example, did you instantly seek to make sense of it through an emotional lens? 
People who do this, they say, well, how do I feel about this? And they take whatever is kind of bubbling up inside of them and then they make sense of reality based on their emotional inner life and then that drives them as they engage with that particular issue. They interpret everything through the lens of emotions. Some people use a social lens. They interpret everything that's happening through the lens primarily of the people around them. So the news breaks, Russia's invading Ukraine. Is this World War III? Will there be a nuclear bomb? All these atrocities are going to occur. They interpret it through the lens of their circle, their network. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? How do you feel? And then that sets the agenda for what they think and how they feel. One of the things we love to do here in the United States is view everything through a political lens. And maybe that was your instinct. You saw the breaking news on your news channel of preference, and then you immediately lean into all the pundits who you just so happen to agree with, and they made sense of it for you, or you quickly looked up your party platform, how does my party feel about the geopolitical tensions between Russia and Ukraine, and that became your stance. You view it through a political lens. But what about people of faith? Here's what people of faith are called to do. And there's value in each of these, but only one can be primary. What we're called to do is view things primarily through a theological lens. Really what that means is through Jesus. Who is he? What has he promised? What has he taught? What is he going to bring about in the end? And that's what Jesus is encouraging from his disciples. See that nobody leads you astray and makes one of these other things primary. He is primary. We view it through a theological lens. A theological lens. And then Jesus goes forward in the conversation and he really, he really walks them through a little bit of, of what's going to happen in the world but with a primary emphasis on how they should respond to it and how they should understand it. And so we're going to take this and, and apply it to ourselves. And the first thing that we see is that Jesus, in his discourse about wars in this world, political tensions, kingdoms rising and falling, and the end of all things, Jesus encourages us to have a brutally honest view of the world. A brutally honest view of the whole thing. I like to consider myself an optimist. I like to consider myself a positive person, but I really have to work at it. I really have to be intentional about being a, a positive and not negative person because if I don't work at it, if I'm left to my instincts, I am a glass half empty kind of guy. Any other glass half empty people here? For example, you know you're a glass half empty person if when someone calls you out of the blue, your first thought is, oh, who died? <laughs> if that's your first thought, then you might be a glass half empty kind of person. So if my mom calls me out of the clear blue sky on a Tuesday afternoon at 2.30, my first thought is, I gotta plan a funeral. And just so you know, like if you randomly call me in the middle of the week out of nowhere, my first thought will be, they're quitting the church or I have a funeral to plan, just so you know. I have to work really hard to be an instinctually positive person. But I can appreciate the brutal honesty that Jesus has here. He tells us it's going to get really bad. However bad you think it is, it's probably going to be worse. And it's okay to notice that, to name that, and to admit that. Listen to what he says. In Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 6, listen to these words. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. There will be wars. Are there wars? Yes. 
See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But in the end, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So there'll be war, there'll be political tensions, but is it the end just yet? No. So if somebody gets on the news or somebody publishes a podcast, and what they say is, hey, um, based on what's going on in the news, I can tie that directly to the book of Revelation, and Jesus is coming back next Thursday. Let's take an offering. They're lying to you, okay? Jesus himself says, the Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour, and a whole lot of crazy stuff is going to come that's going to feel like the end, but it's not the end just yet, even though the end is coming. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, natural disasters, pandemics, those kinds of things. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So not only will there be political tension and wars and famines and earthquakes, but there will be a whole lot of people who get mad at the religious people who say, you're the problem. It's your backward beliefs. It's your faith in a God who isn't helping us. You're the problem, and then things get worse for people of faith. That's a stark picture, but it's brutally honest. It's going to be really, really good in the end, but before it gets really good, it's going to be bad. <laughs> but, but that is not meant to depress you or deflate you. You know what it's meant to do? It is meant to free you and empower you. It is meant to free you in Jesus Christ to call a thing what it is. This is evil. This is bad. This world is broken. This is what we get in a sinful, broken world. This is what we, as human beings, we bring upon ourselves because we're not the hero. We're the enemies. We're the problem. It enables you to be brutally honest about things and not distracted by denial or putting your head in the sand. You call a thing what it is. And here's what I know. The people who have the freedom to be honest are also the people who have the freedom to be the most helpful because they know just how stark things are, how dire the situation is. They know the urgency, and they're free to say, I'm not going to put my head in the sand. I'm not going to deny. I'm also not going to tell myself, lie to myself, thinking that I can solve all these problems. No, what I'm going to do is say, it's bad. People need help. How can I respond? How can I be an agent of peace and mercy and grace and love in this terrible situation? The honest people are free to be the most helpful people. And Jesus frees us to be brutally honest. So first thing, when you see a warring, terrible, horrible world, know that you are free to call it what it is. This is awful, and it's evil, and it's bad, and it might get worse. Be honest. Jesus continues. And you'll notice if you read this section that in these 10 or so verses of this discourse, four separate times, Jesus talks about people falling away or being led astray by some kind of false teacher. And so Jesus' second point in this discourse is this. He encourages his followers to be loyal to him. And when we talk about loyalty to Jesus, really what we're saying is to remain faithful to him, or, or really to, to continue to lean upon him as your source of hope and peace and security in crazy times. Look again at what Jesus says. I mean, he says it plainly, Matthew 24, starting at verse 10. He says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. 
Jesus is saying, I want my followers to be honest, but I also want them to be loyal. When the headlines hit, people will come out of the woodwork to say, I'm the one with all the answers. Only I can save you. Follow me to freedom. And Jesus is saying, watch out that you don't hitch your entire heart and all of your hope to them because the temptation will be profound. You know, it's said that in difficult times, you need your friends, and in difficult times, you find out who your friends really are. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, when it gets really difficult, remain a friend to me. Now, you might be thinking, Matt, man, things could never get so bad that I would, I would turn my back on Jesus and believe the crazy words of some false prophet. Of course you don't think that. And, and honestly, the false prophets typically are, are pretty, pretty easy to spot. You know, the crazy guy who asks for your money online and says the end of the world is next Friday at 3. Like, those are pretty easy to spot. And certainly those will pop up. They always do. How many times has the end of the world been predicted by some shyster? A million, right? But you know what you, what you really should be concerned about is not, not the person who stands up and says, I'm the Messiah. It's the person who, who stands up and has a political opinion or who stands up and says, this is the best way to help or this is how you see the world. And all of that is well intended. And they're not claiming to be the savior, but you make them into one. And you say, this particular political pundit is my everything. Or this particular party dictates the whole thing for me. When you, when you do that, when you hitch your hope for the world onto created things, onto human beings, onto earthly organizations, when you make them your everything, what you've made them into is a false god. And when you've made a false god, a phony savior, and you're being led astray by it, it can be hard to know when exactly that's happened, but, but there are telltale signs. There's a particular person in the media or some other place, and whenever bad things happen, you listen to her or to him and only them. Or there's a particular group helping you make sense of the world, and whatever they say is what you think and feel. Or your thinking as you follow a particular group becomes extremely black and white. There's no room for nuance. And you start to articulate all these enemies and pointing fingers. And the people that they hate, you start to hate. And you start to think that believing what this particular group or this particular person espouses is not just a way to help navigate a difficult world or be a, be a source of help and peace in this particular world, but you think it is life and death for the world. If you've got somebody who's in that role and it's not Jesus Christ, you are no friend of Jesus. You've become more friendly with somebody that you have elevated to his place. Because our hope in a warring and waning world is him and him alone. And Jesus says the temptation to be more loyal to others than to me is profound. Watch out. Then he continues. And he encourages his disciples to not only be brutally honest, to not only be faithful to him, but he encourages them, and this might surprise you, 
He encourages them to not be loveless jerks. He encourages them to, I guess the best way to say it is to be uncynical. You know what a cynic is, right? A cynical person. A cynic is someone who, who is generally pretty negative and pessimistic about the world at large, but in particular people's motives. And they tend to look down upon or really, really give extra scrutiny to altruistic things like, like goodness and kindness and compassion. There must be an ulterior motive. Their love grows cold. That's a cynical person. And, and Jesus says to his disciples in more than one spot here, don't let your love grow cold. Because, because that will be a huge temptation. You know, we live in a day and an age where our God is human ability and our hope is in progress. The thing we worship, especially here in the West, is human ability. We can fix it. We can save the world. We can make it all right. And our hope, our great hope, is that humans will continue to move things forward to the point where we create utopia. That's what we believe. Our God is ourselves, and our progress is our goal. But then what happens is there's a pandemic, or there's an earthquake, or some authoritarian dictator decides to overtake some other country despite the, the outcry of the rest of the world. And what happens is you realize that, that our human ability and our utopian ideal is coming crashing down. That we are not the heroes of the world, we are the problem in the world. And that our ability to create some perfect place apart from outside intervention to usher things to a new beginning is utterly hopeless. And what happens when a people who believe in themselves and who have bought into the lie of their own progress apart from divine intervention, when something happens that they can't control or something happens to show that we haven't progressed all that much at all, everything shatters and they become cynical. What's it matter? That's what Jesus is getting at when he says this. Matthew 24, verse 10 and 12, he says, Many will fall away and betray one another, and they'll start to hate one another. And because lawlessness will be increased, because terrible things are everywhere, despite our best intentions, the love of many will grow cold. In the face of war and tragedy and all kinds of horrors, the world will become overloaded with loveless, selfish jerks. And Jesus says, don't become a jerk. Stay hopeful. Stay compassionate. Stay kind. Be an agent of goodness and grace and mercy in this terrible world. Now you might say, well, how can I do that? If I'm supposed to be brutally honest about how bad things are going to get, and things are indeed bad, how can I also remain uncynical? Here's how. Because you belong to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has placed in your hands two things that set you free to be optimistic, positive, and joyful, even as you are honest about the awful things in this world. In one hand, he has given to you knowledge of his love for all of humanity and his power over the worst that's in this world. He has placed in this hand his death and resurrection. In his death, he demonstrated just how much he loves this whole world. He dies to forgive it. And then in his resurrection, he proves that he is more powerful than the worst that this world has to offer. Is there anything worse than death? He is more powerful. 
And he's given that to you. He loves you more than you can comprehend, and he's more powerful than any other force in the universe. You hold that in this hand. And then in this hand, he gives you these incredible promises, the chief of which is that he is returning, that this loving and all-powerful God is returning, and he's coming back, and he is going to usher all of this to that grand and good day in the end where all the bad things that exist today are suddenly untrue for all time. And justice and peace and mercy reign supreme. And that would be ludicrous to believe in in this hand if you didn't have this in this one. But you hold on to both of these things in this terrible world. God loves me and he's powerful and he's coming back for us and he's going to make all of this good in the end. You hold on to those two things and those two things hold you up. And they allow you to be clear-eyed and brutally honest, but also loving. A non-anxious presence. Joyful. Confident. Expectant. He loves me and he's powerful and he's coming back for me. I'm going to close by giving you an analogy. It's, it's not one that I came up with. It's one that Jesus references. It's a biblical analogy. And, and the analogy is that, is that of a wedding and it's one we talk about from time to time. Um, in 2023, we will see more images of war and, and, and more terrible things will occur. Things that Jesus has said are going to happen. They will occur. But, but here, here's my encouragement to you. Here's your practical take-home piece for today, right? When you see war or famine or political upheaval, whatever awful thing that makes you think, man, it's the, this world is falling apart. When you see war, I want you to think wedding. I know and I'm not making a commentary about weddings or marriage. I'm not saying like marriage is war. <laughs> but it has its moments. Um, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when you see war, this is how we stay anchored in Christ and we stay influenced by the truth of who he is. When we see war, think wedding. Now here's what I mean by that. In the ancient world, first century, a, a wedding really consisted of, of three parts. There was the engagement and the betrothal and then the wedding ceremony. So at the engagement, the, the groom-to-be would pay a bride price, would, would pay money and cattle and other things to the, the father of the bride in order to enter into an engagement. So the groom would pay a price to enter into an engagement with the bride. And then once that price was paid, once the cost was delivered to the father, then they were engaged. And that engagement then meant that they were betrothed. They entered a new stage. And betrothal was a legal status, a legal category. You had to get divorce papers, even though you weren't married yet, to end the betrothal. So the relationship was set and secure, it had legal status. Now, during that betrothal, sometimes a period of one to two years, the, the husband-to-be would go off and he would prepare a home. He would, he would build a home for them, he would, he would grow in his occupation, he would make sure that he had everything in place to provide for them once they were married. So he would go off and prepare a place and a future for them, and the bride would be left behind, and she would be working. 
She'd be working to save up some things for their new life together, but she would also be making, quite literally making her own wedding dress, often seen around town wearing bits and pieces of it, a half-done wedding dress, because she's working on it all the time over the course of a year, two years. So that time in between, the betrothal and the wedding, that time of betrothal, it was a time of, of love and excitement, but also of anxiety. When's he going to come back? When's he going to come back? A time of ex excitement and anticipation, but also tons of work. There's so much to do. It's really, really hard to not yet be married. It's so difficult. There's so much work to do to prepare. But then eventually the groom would come and the wedding would happen and there'd be this lights out feast for like a week and then they'd enter into this whole new reality. What does Jesus say to his disciples not long before his death and resurrection? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But I will come back again. What is he saying? He's referencing marriage. He's saying, look, through what I'm about to do on the, on the cross, in my death and resurrection, I am paying the price. And our relationship is going to change. I am paying the price to the Father, and now you become my betrothed. I am paying the price, and, and our relationship is secure. You are mine. But now I'm going to go, I'm going to go and prepare the future for us. And now you, church, you are in this in-between time where you wait for the groom to come back, and he is going to come back, and there's going to be an incredible wedding. But in the meantime, there's a lot of excitement and anticipation, but there's a ton of work, and it's not always fun, and it can't be great, but what will carry you through it is knowing that your relationship is secure and the groom is returning. It can be incredibly disorienting when terrible things happen in this world. You go, where is God? What's happening? Where am I? What? How do I make sense of this? Church, remember that you are the betrothed and that we are in between an engagement and a wedding day, but this groom is coming back and when he comes back, there will be a wedding and a party. Let that carry you through the present. Church, we have a secret about the world that the world doesn't yet know. What the world doesn't yet know is that, yes, this world is going to end someday, but it is not going to end. It is not going to end in a climate change disaster, even though we should work to care for our planet. It is not going to end in World War III, even though we should work for peace. It is going to end in worship. It is going to end with a celebration. It is going to end with a wedding. That's how it ends. May that, no matter what headline comes up, when you're tempted to think, is this the end of the world? No matter what happens, may that make you a brutally honest person and may that honesty free you to be the most helpful and loving person around. May you stay loyal to Jesus. He is so loyal to you. Keep your heart anchored fully and first in him. And may your love not grow cold when the rest of the world sees its hopes shatter and their hearts become hard. May you be the hopeful and optimistic, loving and compassionate friend that this world needs. There is no better witness in a warring world than someone who is honest and loyal and loving. May that be us.
amen. I invite you to stand as we pray. I know there's lots of stuff going on in your life, lots going on in my life. Uh, we, we cannot pray too much. And so I encourage you to take whatever's going on for you and lift it up to the Father using the words that his Son and our Savior Jesus Christ taught us to pray. We say together the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.